everyone, and welcome to this reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. This is the Monday, January 9th edition. It's brought to you here on the afternoon of Monday, January 9th. I uh, hope you're having a great start to your day. Let's take a check of the forecast before we get into the headlines for the Cedar Rapids and the eastern Iowa area. Well, for today, you can expect partly cloudy skies, winds from the south up to 20 miles per hour, a very nice high of 40 degrees. For tonight, Monday night into Tuesday morning, expect a low of 24 degrees. Out in Iowa City, you can expect a high of 43 degrees for your Monday, a low of 25 for the overnight. A sun, a sunny, Partly sunny skies for your Tuesday, winds out of the northwest up to 15 miles per hour, a high of just 35 degrees for Tuesday tomorrow, the low 24 Tuesday night into Wednesday morning. Iowa City can expect a high of 39 degrees on Tuesday, a low of 27 Tuesday night. And we'll have partly cloudy skies, some sunshine out there for your Tuesday. Wednesday, mostly cloudy, winds from the northwest up to 10 miles per hour. Cedar Rapids will see a high of right around 38 degrees, Iowa City a high of 41 or thereabouts. But again, for today, your Monday, partly cloudy skies, some sunshine, winds out of the south up to 20 miles per hour, the high 40 degrees in Cedar Rapids, 43 in Iowa City. Well, the uh, normal high and low for this time of the year, uh, 28 degrees the high, normal low is 12. The record high was 60 degrees back in 1939. The record low, negative 19, brr, in 1982. Uh, the high uh, temperature for yesterday, Sunday, was 27 degrees. The low Saturday night into Sunday morning was 20. Your 24-hour high on Saturday was 20. The 24-hour low on Saturday was 6. As uh, we're taking a look here at the headlines now in this reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Wounded Knee Occupation. History Center exhibit shows local links to this display here. Uh, very interesting. We'll read about that. Um, and Iowa Dems look for a leader and renewal of their hopes. Party panel votes January 28th on chair to replace Wilburn. Uh, things are changing for the Democrats. 2023 Iowa legislature, diversity rises but still lags, writes Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau. But to start it off, we'll talk about the history exhibit, Wounded Knee Occupation. And the photos here uh, the headline photo shows a person holding a sign that says, We need a new form of government to help the people. It is part of the new Wounded Knee 1973 exhibit at the History Center in Cedar Rapids. Fifty years ago, Wounded Knee, South Dakota, is where the Wounded Knee Massacre of Indians took place. That took place in 1890. Uh, the area was seized by followers of the American Indian Movement. The area was occupied for 71 days. In 1975, three AIM or AIM leaders, um, and that stands for, I'm trying to figure out what that stands for, but uh, three AIM leaders, as it's abbreviated, uh, were tried in federal court in Cedar Rapids on charges related to their occupation. In 1976, two AIM leaders, members accused of killing FBI agents were tried in Cedar Rapids. Subheadline, five activists were tried in CR after the 1973 siege. This is written by Grace King. Dateline, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Fifty years after the, the occupation of Wounded Knee, South Dakota by Native Americans, a new history center exhibits explores the Lynn County connections to the federal trials that follow the siege. It's a story that hasn't really been told in Lynn County since the events happened, said Tara Templeman, the history center's curator and collections manager. 
there's a lot of people who don't know Cedar Rapids had any role in the decision that's uh, decisions that were made after the occupation of Wounded Knee. The Occupied Wounded Knee 1973 exhibit will be open for viewing the next six months. Well, what happened? On February 27, 1973, about 300 members of the Ogala and Lakota tribes and activists from the American Indian Movement, that's what uh, AIM stands for, American Indian Movement, began a protest about corruption and abuse of power at Wounded Knee on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation. The site was chosen because of its history. Nearly 300 Lakota people were killed there December 29, 1890 by U.S. Army soldiers. The protest developed into a 71-day siege with gunfire exchanged between law enforcement and American Indian movement activists. The two AIM leaders, Russell Means and Dennis Banks, were charged with federal crimes and tried in Minnesota, where a federal judge acquitted them in 1974, citing gross misconduct by prosecutors. In June 1975, the trial for three other AIM activists, Leonard Crow Dog, Stanley Richard Holder, and Carter Camp, was moved to U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids, with federal judge Edward J. McManus presiding. The three faced charges involving weapons and the beating of four postal inspectors during the Wounded Knee Siege. The city prepared for the arrivals of hundreds of AIM, AIM activists, but it was actually national and international media that swarmed the city. Family and friends of the three defendants set up camp in Seminole Valley Park, and tribal members used the People's Church at 6th Street and 3rd Avenue Southeast as their headquarters for news conferences. The trial, expected to last up to two months or longer, was over in four days. The jury returned guilty verdicts. In June 1976, McManus presided over the month-long murder trial of Darrell Butler and Robert Robidoux in Cedar Rapids. The two AIM members were accused of killing two FBI agents in June 1975 on the Pine Ridge Reservation, where unrest had continued after the siege. Actor Marlon Brando and comedian Dick Gregory showed up in Cedar Rapids on July 7th to lend support to the defendants, who a jury found not guilty. The History Center exhibit includes historical artifacts, including the peace pipe used during the trial for Native Americans to swear on instead of the Bible. The peace pipe is in two pieces, a sign of respect for indigenous people since a ceremony is to begin as soon as the pipe is fitted together, Templeman said. Also included in the exhibit are interviews with people who witnessed the national event unfold in Cedar Rapids. History Center Executive Director Jason Wright said he frequently hears jaw-dropping stories about the trials from Lynn County residents. Testimony from court documents is part of the exhibit. Visitors are able to step into the role of juror by entering a makeshift jury box and reflecting on what it would have been like to make those decisions 50 years ago, Templeman said. The exhibit also explores current tribal life on the 2.1 million acre Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, which is among the largest in the United States. The reservation has the lowest life expectancy in the nation, and its unemployment rate is in the range of 80%. The exhibit was made possible by a $17,500 uh, that much in donations from Fred Pilcher, Janet Manat Pilcher, and an anonymous donor, and by a $7,500 grant from Humanities Iowa. That's a very interesting story there, one I had absolutely no idea about. And I pride myself in being a history freak. So um, that's a very interesting display. That'd be 
very interesting to go see. 2023 Iowa Legislature, diversity rises but still lags. Our next front page story here, legislative review and demographics. As the session starts today, who is representing Iowans? No doubt it's an exciting day down at the State House. This by Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau, Dateline Des Moines. The diversity among Iowa state lawmakers once again has risen, but still lags well behind the state's population. With the 2023 session of the Iowa legislature that convenes today and the 90th Iowa General Assembly begins its work, there will be 12 minority lawmakers representing Iowans. That's a 50% increase from the eight minority lawmakers who started the two-year General Assembly in 2021 and triple the four who went to work in 2019. And yet, while the number of minority lawmakers steadily has increased after each of the past two elections, the figure still represents only 8% of the Iowa legislature. Meanwhile, in meantime, twice that, roughly 16% of Iowa residents identify as minorities, according to U.S. Census data. The figures in this article are based on available demographic information for the 150 members of the Iowa legislature gathered by the Gazette from multiple sources, including legislative and caucus staff, news reports, election candidate information, and the legislators themselves. Of those 12 minority legislators, 11 will serve in the Iowa House, eight Democrats and three Republicans. There is only one minority legislator in the Iowa Senate, freshman Democratic Senator Isaiah Knox of Des Moines. The group includes the first ever Arab American to serve in the Iowa legislature, Democratic Representative Sammy Sheets of Cedar Rapids. Republican majorities. Iowa Republicans had another successful election in 2022 and thus entered the 90th General Assembly with strong majorities. In the Senate, there are 34 Republicans and 16 Democrats. And in the House, there are 64 Republicans and 36 Democrats. That means in total, the 150-member Iowa legislature is almost two-thirds Republican. Ages and generations. Step aside, boomers. Generation X is taking over, at least in the Senate. Members of Generation X, those born between 1965 and 1980, according to Pew Research Center, make up a majority of lawmakers in one chamber of the legislature. In fact, half of the Iowa Senate, 25 members, is Gen X. That outnumbers the 19 baby boomers in the Senate. But boomers are still well represented in the House, where they hold a commanding 45 to 30 advantage over the Gen Xers. There are a total of 20 millennials born between 1981 and 1996 in the Iowa legislature, 16 in the Iowa House, and four in the Senate. And there are two members of Generation Z born after 1996. Both of the youngsters, Carter Nordman, a Republican from Panora, and Adam Zabner, a Democrat from Iowa City, are in the House. At age 23, Zabner is the youngest member of the 90th General Assembly. A Latino, he is also one of the dozen minority legislators. The oldest member of the legislature is 82-year-old Senator Julian Garrett, a Republican of Indianola. Who knew he was 82? He hides it well. The average age of a current Iowa state lawmaker is 55. Gender imbalance. Well, the legislature made no gains in gender balance in the last election. The second consecutive two-year General Assembly starts with women making up just 29% of all state lawmakers. Women make up 49.8% of Iowa's population. And again, Democrats remain far more gender-balanced. Nearly half, or 46% of Democratic legislators are women, 
while just one in five Republican legislators is a woman. Senate Democrats are exact 50-50 split of eight men and eight women. Iowa uh, House Democrats had featured a majority of women in the past two general assemblies, but this time around have more than men than women, 20 to 16. However, the House Democrats' leadership team, which is elected by their peers, is all women. In regards to education and occupation, farmers, business professionals, and owners and educators account for the majority of Iowa legislators' day jobs. While some legislators listed more than one occupation, the legislature has at least 24 business professionals and 16 business owners, 22 farmers and 13 educators. More than 80% of Iowa lawmakers have at least a four-year college degree. Odds and ends? Well, naturally, two-thirds of Iowa state lawmakers were born in Iowa. But where did the transplants come from? Illinois, former Governor Terry Branstad's favorite punching bag, produced the most foreign-born legislators in the 90th General Assembly. (laughs) Nine foreign-born in Illinois. Uh, Iowa legislators have an average of 2.3 children. There are at least 38 grandparents in the legislature. And new representative Cindy Golding, a Republican from Cedar Rapids, has the biggest family with 21 grandchildren. Wow. The legislators with the most terms served in their respective chambers uh, is Brad Zahn, a Republican from Urbandale, who is serving his fifth four-year term in the Senate. And Representative Dave Jacoby, a Democrat from Coralville, who is serving his 11th two-year term in the House. Okay, and uh, that takes care. No, actually, I take that back. Uh, We actually have one more front-page story here. Uh, They look the same. They're not. Uh, Iowa Dems look for a leader and renewal of their hopes. Party panel votes January 28th on chair to replace Wilburn. This written by Tom Barton of the Gazette des Moines Bureau. Iowa Democrats face a rocky road ahead as the party looks to rebuild after another election cycle that saw Republicans expand their control over the state lawmaking process to levels not seen in Iowa since the 1950s. Iowa Republicans now occupy all six seats in the state's congressional delegation. The governor's office, all statewide offices, save for one and gained historically large majorities in the legislature. On top of that, National Democrats are poised to vote early next month on a new calendar for its presidential nominating process that would strip Iowa Democrats of the the first-in-the-nation caucus status they held for half a century in favor of more diverse battleground states. Well, who will be at the helm helping uh, helping guide the Iowa Democratic Party as it charts a new path remains an open question. Central committee members will vote January 28th to elect a new leader after Iowa Democratic Party Chair Ross Wilburn announced last month he will not seek another term as leader of the party. So far, two have officially announced their candidacy for chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, while others are considering it. Brittany Rulland, who served as campaign manager for Iowa Senator Sarah Trone Garriott, Democrat of West Des Moines, and Burlington veterans advocate Bob Krause, a former state legislator, have announced they are running for a chair of the state party. Iowa Democratic Party Vice Chair June Owens and Democratic former Iowa State Senator Rita Hart of Clinton County say they're considering a run also. I'm just in a position where I'm hoping we can all come together in having some conversation about what's best for the Iowa Democratic Party going forward, and we'll see what happens, Hart said. We have a lot of talking to do. There are definitely some 
challenges we need to address. There's definitely some challenges we need to address, and I'm happy to be part of that conversation, she said. Owens was first elected in 2019 as the first black woman to serve as vice chair of the Iowa Democratic Party, as well as the first black woman to serve as a Democratic National Committee member from the state. She also helped lead the party's efforts to recruit and train candidates and volunteers across the state and has worked over the years to increase voter registration and voting outreach. We definitely need to have a 99-county strategy, Owens said. Organizing year-round is of the utmost importance and engaging volunteers at all levels to help strengthen county parties and candidates to win. And developing a strong, robust small donor program so that we can definitely engage volunteers, whether small donors to big donors, to support the party so we can be organized to win and recruiting candidates to run up and down the ballot and that we are leaving no race uncontested. Some also have suggested C.J. Peterson, chair of the Iowa Democratic Party's Stonewall Caucus, and the former communications director for U.S. Senate candidate Mike Franken should be considered. In a January 3rd op-ed in the Carroll Times-Herald, former newspaper owner and columnist Douglas Burns said Peterson, a leader on LGBTQ issues, would bring the right and relevant portfolio of professional, political, and perhaps more important life experiences to the job. Peterson, who is gay and lives in Templeton in rural western Iowa with his husband Luke, told the Gazette he does not intend to run for chair, but did not immediately rule out the possibility. I'm flattered by what he wrote, but I'm not there yet in terms of putting my hat in the ring, Peterson said. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confers, Democrat of Windsor Heights, told reporters during a news conference Friday she is looking for somebody who is able to do the fundraising and who's able to work with us collaboratively on getting across the state and talking with Iowans about who Democrats in Iowa are and what we stand for. The good news is we don't have to change who we are to get Iowans to vote with us because Iowans are already with us, she said of House Democrats. Policy agenda of lowering costs for Iowans, investing in public schools, protecting reproductive freedom, and legalizing marijuana for recreational use. Iowa Senate Minority Leader Zach Walls, Democrat of Coralville, echoed Confirst and thanked Wilburn for his service, calling him a mentor. Wall said the next chair needs to be someone with experience organizing at the county and local levels and who's really comfortable in rural Iowa. We know that a big part of the future for the Iowa for the Democratic Party in Iowa has to be trimming some of the margins, some of those margins in rural Iowa back down to where they used to be, Wall said. Iowa Republicans at the top of the ballot won in all but a handful of counties on election day. While support for Democrats continues to be concentrated mostly in urban areas, and even some of the larger counties in the eastern part of the state, like Scott and Dubuque, also look to be gaining GOP support. It's a symptom Democratic candidates and party operatives interviewed by the Gazette say is tied to messaging, poor voter turnout, and lacking party infrastructure. Bob Kraus. Kraus is a former legislator who ran for the U.S. Senate nomination in 2010 and 2016 and for governor in 2014. 
He withdrew from the race for his party's nomination for U.S. Senate in 2022, citing the impact of the pandemic on gathering the 3,500 signatures needed to get his name on the ballot. The earthquake caused by the Democratic National Committee shunting the first in the nation Iowa Democratic precinct caucuses creates danger to the survivability of the state party, Kraus wrote to the members of the state party's central committee. Experience is critical in these times, and my experience with our first-in-the-nation caucuses goes back to December 1971, when I was in the room when the the first-in-the-nation caucus date was first picked at the old party headquarters on Mulberry Street in Des Moines. Live elected, Kraus said he would use that experience to rejuvenate and uh, the party and strengthen our and our hold on in urban areas and rebuild our party organization in rural areas. As for the caucuses, Kraus proposes Iowa holds its Democratic caucuses earlier than the DNC allows to comply with state law, which requires both major parties to hold a caucus before any other state's nominating process. But in doing so, the Democratic caucuses will uh, become a straw poll not recognized by the DNC. Any delegate selected at the caucus would be uncommitted. The delegate selection process would not start as a pledge system until district and state conventions that in all likelihood would be after the five-state early window the DNC has proposed. In doing so, Iowa, Iowa Democrats run the risk of not having delegates seated at the national convention. The DNC Rules Committee last year passed new rules that would strip half of a state's delegates if it holds a contest outside the required window and allows the party to vote to remove all the state's delegates entirely. Iowa accounts for about 1% of delegates at the national convention, not enough to affect the nomination. Moving ahead with a silent beauty pageant, Krauss said, will keep some visibility on the Iowa Democratic Party as the Republicans slug it out. Republicans already agreed to keep Iowa's first-in-the-nation caucuses for GOP candidates. Brittany Ruland, one of the few bright spots for Iowa Democrats in the 2022 midterm elections was Trone Garriott's defeat of former Iowa Senate President Jake Chapman, Republican of Adel, a top target of Democrats. Ruland said she is running to use lessons learned from Trone Garriott's campaign to help Democrats rebuild, reorganize, and lay the groundwork to unite local groups and new generations of donors around a new vision for the party. That includes implementing a robust year-round organizing strategy, including in rural areas, to rebuild some trust over there, she says. Over the years, we as a party, have shied away from organizing rural communities, Ruland wrote in a guest post published by Bleeding Heartland, a political news site that features progressive commentary. Many believe that it's not worth our efforts, and while we may not gain outright wins in rural counties, we cannot discount the votes we do pick up. She pointed to Hart's six-fold loss in 2020 after a recount to Iowa Republican U.S. Representative Marionette Miller-Meeks. More and more, we are seeing key races across our state being decided, for better or for worse, by margins of two points or less, Ruland wrote. We must rebuild bridges of trust with our rural and marginalized voters by investing in cultivating relationships with local leadership year-round in all communities. While Ruland, as well, proposes keeping Iowa Democrats financially competitive by building a donor base of labor unions, Iowa power donors and issue organizations 
to overcome the inevitable financial loss of Democrats losing their premier spot in the presidential nominating process. We are at a pivotal point in the party, and I know we are we're all feeling it and wondering what we can do next, Rulin said. And I think we have two options. Option one is we continue to try to keep what we're doing on track and hope for a better outcome each cycle, or we decide that we're to the point where we're ready to do something different. Of course, that was written by Tom Barton and contributed to by Aaron Murphy. Moving on now to page 2A of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Iowa Today, government notes, new time set for Lynn County Board of Supervisors meetings. Also, Cedar Rapids residents can win free pie for taking survey. The Lynn County Board of Supervisor meetings have been moved up an hour starting this week. The Supervisor's Monday working session and Wednesday formal session will begin at 10 a.m. The Tuesday department head update meeting will take place at 9 a.m. The Supervisors at last Wednesday's formal meeting decided to the time of meetings which are open to the public. County meetings are held at the Gene Oxley Lynn County Public Service Center located at 935 2nd Street Southwest in Cedar Rapids. Last week, new supervisor Claire Louis Zumbach proposed the time changes after hearing from county staff. Longer supervisor meetings that had begun at 11 a.m. tend to cut into the lunch hour and push staff work back into the afternoon. My office has a vested interest in those meeting times, Lynn County Auditor Joel Miller told the supervisors last week. The time proves to be problematic for that. Some of those meetings run into the lunch hour, so the morning is pretty much shot and in the afternoon they have to play catch-up on the minutes. So it would be nice to move it up earlier so meetings can be typed up and recorded while they are still fresh. Miller also suggested that the supervisors hold meetings in various cities around the country in the future. All three supervisors were open to holding some sort of meetings in different communities. I think it's a great suggestion, and we can reach out to mayors and city clerks to see if we could even do lunch-and-learn type sessions with city councils and make them open to the public with public comment, Supervisor Ben Rogers said last week. I think there are ways we can do that that's beneficial for the communities. In other news, Cedar Rapids District considers later start time for middle and high school students. Board to approve the 2023-24 calendar with later spring break makeup days in June. This written by Grace King of the Gazette. Dateline Cedar Rapids. The Cedar Rapids School Board is expected to approve a calendar Monday, that's today, for the 2023-24 school year with few changes from the current year, although a calendar committee is exploring pushing the daily start time for middle and high school to later in the morning. Two of the most notable changes on the proposed calendar are the addition of snow makeup days to the end of the year instead of having makeup days in the middle of the year. And changing spring break from the second week of March to March 18th through 22nd to align with Kirkwood Community College's spring break. Late starts and early release times will not be made up unless more than 25 hours of instructional time were missed since the district already has an extra 26.5 hours built into the calendar, Deputy Superintendent Nicole Kukier, or Kuker said during a presentation to the school board last month. The first day of school will be August 23rd, and the last day will be June 3rd, 2024, according to the proposed calendar. 
A public hearing is being held Monday at 5.30 p.m. in the boardroom at the Educational Leadership and Support Center located at 2500 Edgewood Road, northwest in Cedar Rapids, before the school board votes on the calendar. A calendar committee last year began exploring options, including whether or not the start and end times for elementary and secondary schools should be switched. Elementary currently starts at 8.50 a.m. and ends at 3.50 p.m. Secondary starts at 7.50 a.m. and ends at 2.50 p.m. Cooker said the calendar committee proposes change to begin gathering community input. Making that type of calendar change impacts everyone in the community, she said. Starting the school day later can help middle and high school students get enough sleep, improve their health, academic performance, and quality of life, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The American Academy of Pediatric Re Pediatrics recommends middle and high schools not start until 8.30 a.m. or later to give students the opportunity to get the amount of sleep they need. Significant change takes time in education, said Iris Colbert, equity coach in the school district. All the research points to switching it. School board member Cindy Garlock said the proposed 2023-24 calendar also includes additional days off for staff, at least one for each month of the school year, after hearing feedback from educators that it would be nice to have more days off throughout the year, Cougar said. The calendar committee began meeting in September and is made up of educators, parents, and community members. The committee gathered input from a survey open from October 12th to December 3rd that received 3,500 responses. About 2,200 were from parents and guardians, 1,400 from staff. Other responses were from residents and students. And we are at the halfway point, actually a little past it here in this reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Here on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Don't forget all of our programs heard on IRIS are intended for the use of our audience. We hope you're having a great day, a great Monday, as we start off this afternoon. If you're listening to us on the air, this is Andrew Haupt filling in. Since we're at the halfway point, it's now time to check in with our, our obituaries here for this Monday in the Cedar Rapids Gazette. The Obet in Index in today's Gazette reading includes from Aurora, Donna S. Newman-Kester, Cedar Rapids, Marlene J. Dostal, Roberta Lou Morrison, Gruber, and Charles M. Weepy. From Hills, Marianne A. Michael. From Lisbon, Priscilla Burnett. From Middle Amana, Gay Lorraine Wingfield Mercer. From Monticello, or Monticello, however you say that out there, Blake James McDermott. From North Liberty, Joan L. Lindell, or Little. From Wadena, Dennis D. Bond. From West Branch, Lee Barbara Wood. And from Winthrop, William J. Bill Welch. Death notices from Cedar Rapids. We have Eric S. Wolner, age 58, who died Friday, January the 6th, 2023. Iowa Cremation is handling the arrangements of Cedar Rapids. From Monona. Elmer Leonard Bryce, age 82, died Friday, January 6, 2023. Leonard Grau Funeral Home and Cremation Service of Monona is in charge of arrangements. And then from Treyer, Amy Brooke Spears, age 41, died Friday, January 6. The Van Steenheis Tehan Funeral Home of Vinton is handling uh, arrangements for the family. Our first full obituary is for Marlene J. Dostal of Cedar Rapids. Marlene J. Dostal, age 73, of Cedar Rapids, passed away following a brief illness early Friday, January 6, 2023, 
at Mercy Medical Center. Funeral Mass is at 10 a.m. Wednesday at St. Wenceslas Catholic Church by Father Dennis Conway. Burial will follow at St. John's Cemetery. Visitation after 9 a.m. Wednesday at the church. The Papage Cuba Funeral Service is serving the family. Marlene is survived by son Tim Collum, siblings Marvin Krotz, Mary Henderson, married to Mike Rosica, and Patty, uh, with uh, married to Mike Pence. I don't think it's the same Mike Pence we know of. Uh, and 12 nieces and nephews and their families. She was preceded in death by her husband, David Dostal Sr., parents George and Louise Zubrod Krotz, daughter Tina Cullum, sister Elaine Holder, and sister-in-law Nancy Krotz. Marlene was born November 21, 1949 in Cedar Rapids and was a lifelong resident. She had worked as a unit aide in the Pediatrics Department of Mercy Hospital and later as a CNA in the activities at the Salon Nursing Care Center. She was a lifetime member of St. Wenceslas Catholic Church. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations may be given to a charity of the donor's choice. From there we go to Roberta Lou Morrison Gruber of Cedar Rapids, better known by her beloved family and friends as Bobby, died Saturday, January 7, 2023, at the Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids of heart failure. She was 80 years old, born April 23, 1942, in Cedar Rapids to Paul Morrison and Eleanor C. Humphrey Morrison. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday, January 12th at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home with the rosary service starting at 7 p.m. Funeral Mass will be held at 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 13th at St. Pius X Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Burial will follow at the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. A graduate of Jefferson High School, Bobby studied for two years at the University of Iowa, after which she worked at Rockwell Collins. During this time at Rockwell, she met and later married Kenneth Gruber, thus beginning a family and a career as a homemaker. Bobby was a fantastic seamstress who did many custom alterations and original pieces. After the sudden and early death of Kenneth, Bobby reinvented herself and began a career in food service and concessions. Managing concession stands at the CR Colonel's Stadium, Tuma Soccer Complex, Sport Zone, and owning a Blimpy franchise. Bobby was a strong supporter of law enforcement and military, keeping a band of black and blue on her front door. Her love for law enforcement began with her grandfather, Lewis Morrison, who was a Cedar Rapids chief of police. Her support continued for many family members and friends in the services. Bobby is survived by her four children, Anne Thing, Michael Gruber, Jenny married to David Mayer, and Jim, married to Janelle Gruber. Seven grandchildren, Adam married to Yuka Mayer, Jessica married to Luke Conrad, Andrew Thing, Logan Mayer, Matthew Gruber, Ben Mayer, and Maddie Mayer, and two great-grandchildren, Kalina Mayer and Alex Mayer. She was preceded to death by her parents, her husband, a sister, and brother-in-law, Jeannie, married to Bob Lopez, and one granddaughter, Nicole Thing. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the family. Please leave a message, tribute, or memory to Bobby's family at www.cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. From there we go to Charles M. Weepy of Cedar Rapids. Charles M. Weepy, age 90 of Cedar Rapids, died Friday, January 6, 2023 at the Keystone Cedars. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home with rosary service beginning at 4 p.m. 
A funeral mass will be held at 10 a.m. Thursday, January the 12th at St. Wenceslas Catholic Church by the Reverend Douglas Loki. Inurment will take place at a later date in the Cedar Memorial Park Mausoleum. Charlie was born January 15, 1932 in Independence, Iowa, the son of Charles Sr. and Agnes Aikel Weepy. He graduated from Loris and received further education at the University of Iowa. He married Faustine Reuter on September 6, 1958 in Cedar Rapids. Charlie was employed at Link Belt and FMC Corporation, Clark Equipment Company, and Highway Equipment Company. He was a faithful member of St. Matthew Catholic Church and regular volunteer at Mercy Hospital. Survivors include his children, Jean married to Bob Beer, Margaret Weepy, Michael Weepy, all of Cedar Rapids, and Brian married to Angela Weepy of Fernandina Beach, Florida. Five grandchildren, Stephanie married to Reed DeSotel, Megan Beer, Jason married to Sarah Beer, Ella Weepy and Alyssa Weepy, two great-grandchildren, Adeline and Hudson DeSotel. Also surviving are his nieces, Susan Tharp and Rose Beavis. He was preceded in death by his wife, Faustine, his parents and sisters, uh, Senior Rose Marie Weepy, and Rita Kenny. In lieu of flowers, a donation in his memory may be sent to Camp Courageous or St. Matthew Catholic Church. From there we go to Gay Lorraine Wingfield Mercer, age 90, of Middle Amana, passed away peacefully at Cottage Grove Place in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, on January 5th, 2023. Services will be at 11 a.m. Wednesday, January the 11th, at Cedar Memorial Chapel of uh, Memories by Pastor Colleen Queener. A visitation will be held on Tuesday, January 10th, 2023, at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home from 4 to 7 p.m. Burial will take place in the Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. Gay was born in Linville, Iowa on April 29, 1932, the daughter of Claude and Berdina Macy Wingfield. She is survived by her children, Darren Mercer and Sue Kittrell, grandchildren Clint married to Kristen Mose, Clayton Mose, and beloved friend Peggy Hubbard. She was preceded in death by her husband, George Mercer, her parents, Claude and Berdina Macy Wingfield, brothers Keith and Claude, and two sisters, Mary Ellen and Claudette. Over the years, Gay enjoyed teaching Sunday school, attending Bible study in small groups. She was a member of Clover Ridge Method, Method Church in Walford, Iowa. Gay and George spent much of their time bowling and golfing. Many family vacations and Saturday mornings were spent golfing. Gay spent many hours caring for her loved ones in their time of need. She helped care for her mom, husband, and sister Claudette at the end of their lives. She took a lot of pride in being so active in the lives of her grandchildren. Gay drove the neighborhood kids to school for years. Six boys loaded up into Gay's car to ride a block to school. She never missed a school concert or sports activities. Gay was selfless, loving, and devoted to her family and friends. She is greatly missed. From there we go to Marianne A. Michael, that last name is spelled M-I-C-H-E-L, of Hills. Marianne A. Michael, age 85, died peacefully Thursday, January 5th, 2023, at Atrium Village in Hills. Massive Christian burial will be celebrated at 10 a.m. Wednesday, January 11th, 2023, at St. Joseph Church in Hills. Father High Den will officiate. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Tuesday, January 10th, at the church. Burial will be at the St. Stanislaus Cemetery. 
In lieu of flowers, memorials may be directed to the Marianne Michael Memorial Fund. Marianne was born May 7, 1937 in Coralville, the daughter of Loran Cole and Mary Elizabeth Hip Conklin. She was a 1955 graduate of University High School in Iowa City. On October 25, 1958, Marianne married Clayton Michael in Hills and have, they have been married for 64 years. Marianne was employed for a few years at Paris Cleaners in Iowa City and later became a homemaker. She was a member of St. Joseph's Church and the Altar and Rosary Society. Marianne enjoyed gardening, especially growing her beautiful flowers and playing cards. She loved to travel as Clayton and Marianne wintered for many years in Sun City, Arizona, Gulf Shores, Alabama, that's a lovely place, Myrtle, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, Florida, and Texas. Marianne is survived by her husband, Clayton, two sons, Brian married to Cindy Michael and Doug married to Shelly Michael, both of Riverside, five grandsons, Nathan, Adam, Logan, Jake married to Jackie and Josh, and one great-grandchild expected in February. Marianne was preceded in death by her parents, her brother, Francis Conklin, and her sister, Leona Preisler. Online condolences may be shared at www.com. Lensingfuneral.com. There we go to Blake James McDermott of Monticello. Blake James McDermott, age 15, died peacefully at home with his family by his side on January 6, 2023, after a courageous battle with San Filippo Syndrome. Blake was all boy. He loved anything that he could throw. Football, baseball, basketball, you name it. Blake also enjoyed four-wheeler rides, being outside, ice cream, wearing his baseball cap, singing songs with his mom, throwing the ball with his dad, spending time with his sister Morgan and all of his amazing caretakers that quickly became family. He had an infectious laugh and showed strength, resiliency, and utmost joy for life. His inspiration will live on within his family, friends at the San Filippo community. Blake was born February 13, 2007 at Mercy Hospital in Dubuque, Iowa. He is survived by his parents, Mike and Jill McDermott, his grandparents, Leo and Janet Cook, and Linus and Shirley McDermott, and many aunts, uncles, and cousins. He was preceded in death by his sister, Morgan, who recently passed after a courageous battle with San Filippo Syndrome, and his cousin, Ryder. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 11 a.m. Wednesday, January 11th, at the Sacred Heart Catholic Church. Visitation will be held prior from 9 to 10.45 a.m. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be made to the MSP Society, Make-A-Wish Foundation, or Camp Courageous. Dennis D. Bond of Wadena. Dennis D. Bond, age 75, of Wadena, Iowa, passed away Thursday, January 5, 2023, at Maple Crest Manor of Fayette. A funeral service will be at 10.30 a.m. Saturday, January 14th at the Jameson Schmitz Funeral Home in Arlington. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Friday and from 9 to 10.30 a.m. Saturday at the funeral home. Sons of the American Legion Service is at 6.30 p.m. Friday at the funeral home. Interment will be in the Wadena Cemetery in Wadena. Memorials may be directed to the Wadena Community Church, Wadena Fire Department, or the Wadena Legion and Auxiliary. Online obituaries may be left at www.jamesonschmidtsfuneralhome.com. There we go to Lee Barbara Wood of West Branch. Lee Barbara Wood, age 89, of West Branch, passed away on January 6, 2023, at her residence. Memorial services will be held at 2 p.m. Monday, January 9th, at the Congregational United Church of Christ in Iowa City. Private interment will take place at a later date. 
Lee is survived by her daughters, Melissa Wood and Elizabeth, married to Michael Connolly. Grandchildren, Matthew, Ian, Mary Beth, and Anne Marie, as well as her great-grandchildren, Philip, Dahlia, Hayden, and Ramona. She was preceded in death by her parents and her husband, Walter Wood. From there we go to Joan L. Liddell of North Liberty. Joan L. Liddell, age 79, of North Liberty, formerly of West Liberty, died Thursday, January 5th, 2023, at her home. Memorial services will be held at 1 p.m. Saturday, January 14th at Gay and Sia Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Iowa City. There will be a time of visitation beginning at 11 a.m. Saturday, where not only can you visit with her family, but also enjoy cookies made from her favorite cookie recipes. In lieu of flowers, memorial donations can be made in her memory to any of the following Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center, UIHC, West Liberty Public Library, or Safe Haven Animal Shelter of Iowa County. To share a thought, memory, or condolence with Joan's family, please visit, visit the Gay and Sia Funeral and Cremation Service website at www.gayandciha.com. Joan Lee Pantel was born October 1st, 1943, in Iowa City, Iowa, the daughter of Clifford C. and Orpha A. Hemi, last name spelled H-I-M-E, Pantel. Growing up in West Liberty, she attended school, graduating from West Liberty High School in 1962. She was united in marriage to Alonzo Nelson Little, Lonnie, on February 1, 1963, at the Little Brown Church in Nashua, Iowa. The couple re resided in West Liberty, raising their two sons, Todd and Troy. In 1988, Joan and Lonnie moved to North Liberty, Joan not only cared for her immediate family, but was caregiver to a number of extended family members. Joan was known for many things. Her love of baking was not only one that brought her great joy, especially trying out new recipes, but sharing her cookies, pies, and other baked goodies with family, friends, neighbors, and the community. She loved all animals, tame and wild, was known to have fed Chuck the woodchuck and Percy the opossum, deer, and many other creatures, especially birds on their property. After moving to North Liberty, she and Lonnie enjoyed hosting at area campgrounds Edgewater and Coralville and F.W. Kent Park near Oxford. Here, Joan made new friends that lasted her lifetime, still corresponding with many all over the United States. The most important in her life was her family, especially as the grandchildren and great-grandchildren came along. Her family includes her son, Todd, daughter-in-law, Marty Liddell, six grandchildren and seven great-grandchildren, and very dear friend Ellie Graves. She was preceded in death by her parents, her husband Lonnie, her son Troy, daughter-in-law Kelly Liddell, and brother Donald Pantel. From there we go to Priscilla Burnett of Lisbon. Priscilla Burnett, age 87, of Lisbon, Iowa, passed away on Saturday, January 7, 2023. Funeral services are at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 12th at the Lisbon United Methodist Church by the Reverend Josh Swaim. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday at the Stuart Baxter Funeral and Memorial Services of Mount Vernon. Burial is in the Lisbon Cemetery. Those unable to attend are invited to watch the service via live stream. Please find the live stream link on Priscilla's tribute wall and share your support and memories with her family at www.stuartbaxter.com 
under obituaries. Survivors include her children, Aaron married to Sherry Burnett, Andy married to Peggy Burnett, and Anna Miller. Grandchildren, Brandon Burnett, Dustin married to Kayla Burnett, Brittany married to Alex Lurkins Burnett, Melissa Miller, Cabaret Miller, Rachel Miller, Jacob Burnett, and Jessica married to Daniel Hausch Burnett, and great-grandchildren Andrea, Aaliyah, Addison, Ashton, Grayson, Lakeland, Leah, Aspen, and Cash. She is also survived by brothers-in-law David Burnett and Daniel Burnett, and sister-in-law Alita Siran. Priscilla was born on November 21, 1935 in Lisbon, the daughter of Leo and Edna Ward Hubbler. She graduated from Lisbon Community School in 1955. On July 5, 1958, she married James Burnett. Priscilla worked for 10 years at Plaza Auto Auction, but will be remembered by most for her 20-plus years as a custodian at the Lisbon Community Schools. She and Jim were very active in the Cyclops American Legion, with Priscilla providing leadership with the auxiliary. She sold many poppies and planned by events to honor veterans. In her other free time, Priscilla enjoyed cross-stitching, reading books, and was a huge sports fan. She loved following the local kids, but also enjoyed the Packers, Dodgers, and Cubs. Priscilla was preceded in death by her parents, husband Jim, grandchildren Jamie Burnett and Morgan Miller, half-brother Chuck, sister-in-law Grace Burnett, brother-in-law Jack married to Judy Burnett, infant brother Jean, and her loving pets Molly and Toby. Memorials are suggested to the Lisbon United Methodist Church or Cyclops American Legion Post 109. Next up, William J. Bill Welch of Winthrop. William J. Bill Welch, age 81, of rural Winthrop, Iowa, went to his heavenly home on Friday, January 6, 2023, at the Strawberry Point Lutheran Home in Strawberry Point, Iowa. A massive Christian burial is at 10.30 a.m. Tuesday, January the 10th, at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Winthrop, with the Reverend David Beckman officiating. Visitation is 3.30 to 5 p.m. Monday, from 9.30 to 10 a.m. Tuesday, at the Fawcett Schmitz Funeral Home in Winthrop. The Rosary, 3.30 p.m. Monday, that's today, at the funeral home. Interment is at the St. Patrick Catholic Cemetery in Winthrop with military honors. An online obituary is at jamesonschmitzfuneralhome.com. William Joseph Welch was born February 27, 1941, in Manchester, Iowa, the son of Charles John and Mary Bernita Keenan Welch. Bill was the oldest son. His younger brothers were Patrick and Jerome. The family lived at rural Winthrop until moving to Fremont, Nebraska in October of 1950, where his father ran a beef feedlot operation and a farrow to finish hog operation. Bill attended St. Patrick Catholic School and played football, basketball, and baseball. In May of 1956, Bill graduated the 8th grade, and the family moved to Spokane, Washington, where he attended Gonzaga Prep School. He played football, basketball, and baseball at Gonzaga Prep and graduated in May of 1960. Bill attended the University of Portland in Portland, Oregon, where he graduated with a degree in finance and economics on January 30, 1965. Bill joined the U.S. Air Force on February 15, 1965, and received his commission as a second lieutenant in May of 1965. Bill went to flight school and received his wings on April 8, 1966. He flew C-130 planes out of Forbes Air Force Base in Topeka, Kansas from May 21, 1966 until January 12, 1969. He spent time flying in Europe and Central and South America. 
Bill flew C-47s in Vietnam from April 12, 1969 to April 8, 1970. Bill then had a one-year break in his military service. He then flew C-141s from April 12, 1971 until October 10, 1976 at Travis Air Force Base, California. Bill's next assignment was Maxwell Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama. He worked at the command post and did planning functions from October 1976 until November 1979. Bill then went to Germany where he worked in operation planning from November of 1979 to November of 1982. Bill's last assignment was Chief of Flight Planning Operations at Offutt Air Force Base in Omaha, Nebraska from November of 1982 until he retired in March of 1986. Bill returned to college where he studied computer programming for two years. Bill then worked for the Air Force in environmental work for one year and then did budget work at SAC Air Force Base Operations for three years, ending his work with the Air Force in March of 1992. Bill returned to the family farm in Winthrop where he operated the farm for 21 years, retiring in December of 2012. Bill is survived by a brother, Patrick Welch of Winthrop, and a host of friends. Bill was preceded to death by his parents, brother Jerry, aunt and uncle, and many cherished friends. From there we go to Donna S. Newman Kester of Aurora. Donna S. Newman Kester, age 60, of Aurora, Iowa, passed away suddenly on January 1, 2023, at the Buchanan County Health Center in Independence, Iowa. Donna was born on May 30, 1962, in Vinton, Iowa, the daughter of Alfred D. and Francis P. Carlson Hedinger. She was raised on the Hedinger family farm in rural Manchester, Iowa, with her 10 siblings. Donna was a member of the graduating class of 1980 from Manchester High School. After graduating, Donna went on to work as a nurse's aide and a cook in nursing homes around northeast Iowa. On May 23, 1998, Donna married Richard D. Kester. They made their home together on a farm in rural Aurora, Iowa. Donna went on to start working as a tax analyst at H&R Block in Independence in Olwine, Iowa. She was diligent at her job and quickly advanced in her certifications, allowing her to better help her customers. She really loved her job and helping people. A massive Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. Wednesday, January 11th, at the Immaculate Conception Catholic Church in Masonville, Iowa. Burial will be held at St. Mary's Cemetery in Masonville. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. at the Rife Family Center Funeral Home and Crematory in Winthrop, Iowa. And does it give a date for that? I'm guessing that will happen the ne the day before, but it doesn't specify here. To leave an online condolence, please go to www.reiffamilycenter, that'd be reeffamilycenter.com under obituaries. And we've covered a lot of obituaries here in this reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Monday, January 9th. And that takes up all of our time together. So just want to say thank you so much for listening here to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Don't forget to check out our website, iowaradioreading.org. You can find this as a podcast along with our other publications as well, many other publications, our newspapers especially. Well, have a great day, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. This is Andrew Halps saying catch you next time and straight ahead.